New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Today I'm hosting Arlene Goldbard. She's the author of several books, including The Culture of Possibility, Art, Artists, and the Future, and the novel The Wave. Arlene, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thank you for having me, Justine. It's my pleasure. Let's talk about the paradigm shift that these two books represent. What is a paradigm shift? A paradigm shift is one of those moments in history when the old story of who we are and what we're doing here can't really hold newly emerging information, and we need a new story. So the classic example is um, when ships sailing over the horizon didn't fall off into oblivion, the story of the globe replaced the story of a flat earth. What I'm looking at now is an old story that I call Data Stan, in which essentially we're made to serve our own creations. When we want to call the doctor or customer service, we're asked to press one, press two, hang on until we get demoralized and give up. We're asked to conform to machine-like linearity of interface systems in education, in healthcare, in other realms of what should really be human social goods. People are fed up with that. It's really not working for us anymore. It's making human beings smaller and less significant than we really are. I think it's time that we're going to shift into the other realm that I call the Republic of Stories, in which human scale is important. Individual stories are important. We understand that the way we shape our stories shapes our lives individually and collectively. And we spend a lot more time living as if those things mattered. Do you see glimmers of that kind of culture rising up, or as you call it, the wave of that culture? And in your novel, you call it the wave happening? I do. I see a lot of very interesting work by artists across the country who want to put their gifts at the service of that emergence. So, for example, I write about a movie called Trash Dance that takes place in Austin, Texas, in which a choreographer, Allison Orr, is in residence for a year with the Solid Waste Management Department and does this beautiful dance, which is filmed by Andrew Garrison, um, based on the grace, the beauty, the meaning, the intentionality that these sanitation workers bring, bring to their work. There are thousands of arts projects like that all across the country. So it's really bringing our attention to the beauty in the mundane. Absolutely. And artists are more revered in this and have a greater part to play in this rising culture. Do you see that actually happening? I do. I mean, one of the things that one of my characters in The Wave recognizes is that people who are walking around listening to their iPods are self-medicating in a sense. They're administering to themselves the 
beauty, the sounds, the meanings that will inspire them to face whatever they need to during the day. I see that on every street corner in America. I see people talking about certain films, certain television programs. Those become the containers, the crucibles for working out social meaning, identity, how we want to live. Much, much more powerful than the daily news or white papers that are created by agencies. I know that you use the analogy, if we plug into the daily news... And maybe let's say we take a break from it for a little bit. Let's say we decide not to plug into the daily news for even a couple of months and we go back to it. We find that we really haven't missed much. Do you find this true in your life? I do. I kind of compared it to the backdrop in those old Roadrunner cartoons where you see the same cactus and teepee and so forth go by every time the Roadrunner walks down another mile. There's a lot of commercial interest shaping the news in this country. They need to find something that hooks people in and then talk about it so frequently and so repeatedly that it becomes embedded in our minds as the big thing that's happening. Often it's not. And if things are repeated often enough, we think, oh, well, then it must be true. We don't question whether it's true or not. Yeah, the cognitive scientists call that an availability cascade. That something is picked up, more people pick it up because somebody has picked it up in the first place. It cascades until it occupies a space that's vastly disproportionate to its actual social meaning. But when the artists that I'm talking about and people who work with them are making a big statement, which is that there are many stories that count right now, that all of us together go into shaping the society, that we can't just focus our attention on what a few people at the center want to spread out to the margins, but we need a cross-conversation, a kind of story field that engages us all. So what you're saying is it's not a monolithic structure. This is really truly spread out without a centralized focus. So it feels more amorphous, and it's harder to to see it as a movement. That's true. It's not an organized movement, but... You know, my friend Jeff Chang says culture precedes politics. And the example he likes to give is that uh, Ellen came out on TV a decade and a half before same-sex marriage was actually passed as uh, a legal possibility in some states in this country. That change arises within the culture. People pay attention to it within the culture a long time before it trickles up into official policy. So we often use like destruction of the Berlin Wall as a defining moment. But now you as an artist are noticing other moments and bringing to our attention, oh, this happened some time ago and now look. And isn't that the function of an artist in some way? It is. And if you look at any kind of social change, the Berlin Wall, the whole fall of the Warsaw Pact countries, for example, what Havel, what musicians did in the former Czechoslovakia, really, really influential in changing people's sense of the possibility and inculcating the deep truth that you can't actually be controlled ultimately from the top that way. There's a way that human resilience, human possibility is going to trickle to the surface regardless of how heavy-handed the authorities are being. You brought up the Czech uh, Republic, and my husband, Michael Toms, many years went to Prague, and he 
interviewed, uh, it was right after the Velvet Revolution. It was still very, very new. And Havel was president. This poet was president. And some of the people that he interviewed were folk singers. And one of the things that they used during the oppressive years when the Soviets had control, they used the folk song, We Shall Overcome. And it was okay to use it because the powers that be or the censors didn't see that as, uh, they said, oh, this is a traditional old hymn, and they they didn't censor it. Exactly. And this is an example of something where where the artist, the music came in kind of under the radar. Exactly. One of the things I write about in the culture of possibility is a singing revolution in Estonia where they use these uh, national song fests where people came in these mass choirs and performed a national anthem, traditional folk songs, and just gathering together to sing and assert cultural identity in this way had a powerful, powerful impact on releasing that country from Soviet power. You are affiliated in some way with something called the Institute of Digital Storytelling? The Center for Digital Storytelling. I'm a consultant to them. It's a great organization. Can you say something about that? Yeah, they've been helping people for 20 years tell first-person stories with their own words, images, music, whatever they select. They usually appear as three- or four-minute little movies that can be uploaded to YouTube. And they're used in a lot of different contexts. So, for example, uh, the Banyan Tree Project recently included stories made by Asians and Pacific Islanders who are coping with HIV and telling their first-person stories about what that experience was like for them within the context of a culture in which those stories aren't often told. There's some pressure to conceal them. So very often this telling of first-person stories becomes a threshold experience for the individual who tells their story to open the realm of social interaction, to open the possibility of dialogue for them about things that can change when we recognize and talk about them, but can't change if we don't. And it's also saving some languages, too, isn't it? There are languages that are dying out that we're now being able to record and hear in the native voices and preserving them in some way. Yeah, my friend Bob Holman is doing a PBS series right now about endangered languages around the world that were revived and brought back to health. And a lot of it through storytelling, through poetry, through the performance of drama and new media. What about theater arts? How is that playing into the new culture? You know, I always think first of forum theater, which is Augusto Boal's method, because he created a mode of theater that breaks down the fourth wall between the audience and the performers. And he turned the audience members into what he called spectators, which is spectator actors. The idea of forum theater is that a scene is performed that illuminates a challenge, an opportunity, and after it's performed the first time, audience members can come up and replace the characters and try out different ways of resolving whatever is posed. Boal used that when he was a member of Rio's municipal legislature to actually develop new laws and policies. That's amazing. And do you see that happening now in the U.S.? Yes, that's a huge movement in this country. Playback theater is another huge movement of that kind. There are people doing all kinds of socially engaged performance in which 
work is created based on first-person stories that are gathered from people in a particular community, and then that's transmuted into theater. Are there guides to help people to do this? Can they go online and find some way of getting themselves started with a group, or what, what advice do you have? Playback theater and uh, Boal's work, which is actually the big name for that, is Theater of the Oppressed. Both have international websites where a lot of resources is available. One place I would send people is to my friend's Roadside Theater in Appalachia. Their website is roadside.org, and they have a lot of stories about how they evolve theater based on first-person oral history and uh, guides to a lot of technical material that will help people do it for themselves. So what about education? Do you see some changes going on in education today? I do. I mean, I, I see some really encouraging revolts. I love the fact that Diane Ravitch, who is such a big advocate for No Child Left Behind and teaching to the tests and standardized testing, has completely turned around and said, we have to teach the whole person. We have to cultivate the whole person. I think a lot of parents and teachers are standing up against what I would call factory education, and that that's going to be changing pretty quickly. And there was a whole march that I think continues, uh, Save Our save our Schools, SOS, Save yes. Our School yes. Movement. Yes. And, and then, of course, the Occupy Movement, the Arab Spring Movement. All of these things, when you put them all together, are really forming a wave. Why did you name your, your novel The Wave? just because of what you just said, because a number of phenomena are arising at the same time, but without any real coordination with each other and all pointing in the same direction. So just like a wave, all the drops of water coalesce to, to make a particular movement, but nobody's masterminding it, nobody's controlling it. These social movements are happening in the same way. People are getting the same good ideas at the same time and expressing them in their own communities, in their own ways. I'm thinking of the Occupy movement in New York City when they wanted to just shut it down. And they said, okay, you can't use a megaphone. And then the, the creativity that arose out of the group, and they started repeating the phrase, whoever was speaking, those closest to them would repeat the phrase, and, right. and it would go like a wave yeah. all the way throughout the crowd until the ones that were the furthest away could hear what is being said. That was just masterful. It was uh, very creative. Yeah, they called that mic check. And one of the side effects of mic check is to slow action down. So you have a crowd, but it can't take precipitous action because everything has to filter out to the margins and back into the center. And it's not centralized. So you can't just take one microphone away from one person and then, therefore, now the whole thing is dead. Right. And that's what you're talking about. It's like lots of different things percolating at the same time. And I think of it like a hydra or something, many arms or an octopus. And you can't just, just crush it with one blow. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'm suggesting is that this is happening now. I give a lot of examples in both books of ways that it's already manifesting. Because we're trained to see a different reality, the official reality, we can't always bring it into focus. A lot can change with just noticing what's already going on and what it means. 
And you bring that out, as you say, in both books. I mean, even though you're you're visioning the future and some of it is is fictional in imagining something, but a lot is based on the stepping stones that are already there that are taking us there. That's right. The culture of possibility is all about things that have already happened. The wave takes place in 2023 and 2033, but I took care to not put anything in it that couldn't be accomplished in that amount of time. It's not a fantasy. It's a possibility. Oh, yes. Oh, thank you so much, Arlene, for writing these books and being with us today. Thank you so much, Justine. I really enjoyed talking with you. I've been speaking with Arlene Goldbard, and she's the author of The Culture of Possibility, Art, Artists, and the Future, and the novel The Wave. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, arlenegoldbard.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Thank you for joining us on the New Dimensions Cafe I invite you to please join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.